Well, good morning. This morning we are in Daniel chapter 6, probably one of the best-known passages of Scripture in the Bible and certainly in the book of Daniel. In chapter 6, we're going to see that Daniel had something that each of us certainly want to attain. He was a godly influence. If we could control things, if we could control the world, the world would look very different. But I want to remind you, God could do that. God could easily just control the world. He could just choose to make it exactly how he wants it to be. But the truth is, he's given us free will. And rather than trying to control us like robots or automatons, he gives us free will and the Holy Spirit lovingly seeks to influence us. Now, there's a very big difference between control and influence. Control makes things the way you want it to be. Influence, on the other hand, gives people a choice and then seeks to show them the truth and the wisdom in obeying God's word. Understand that's the way God deals with us and is the way he's dealing and has always dealt with the world. So while you may be thinking what would be great is if we just, if God just had complete control of the world, that will happen at some point in the future. But for now, God is seeking to change hearts, to reach hearts, to bring people into his kingdom according to his will, but that they might come willingly according to their will. So let's understand what what Daniel was is a godly influence. He was a godly influence, and we desire to be the same. So as we look at this chapter, let's ask the Lord to give us the ability to be that influence in our world, in our culture, in our families, and in our homes. Lord Heavenly Father, we look to you now, and we ask that we would be that influence around all of those that we come in contact with on a regular basis, at our jobs, in our homes, within our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools and universities, wherever you've placed us, wherever we are. May we influence those around us for good and for your glory. May we follow the example of Daniel, and when we are faced with a choice between obeying you or bowing the knee to the world, may we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel himself, bow our hearts only to you and stand for you in this wicked world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I promised last week I would give you a little background in Median Persian history. And when I say a little, just a little. Just to bring us up to speed. We know that last week Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was slain. And Darius the Mede became king at the age of 62. So that sets us up for chapter 6 and some of the later chapters in Daniel. Daniel didn't actually have the opportunity to serve as prime minister for more than a few hours. He had been elevated to that position because of his ability uh, to interpret the handwriting on the wall. But Darius the Mede was co-reigning over the kingdom of Babylon with a man named Cyrus the Persian. We'll be introduced to him at the end of this chapter. Cyrus features prominently in the scriptures. In fact, let me give you an overview of history in Persia. In 559 B.C., Uh, which was during the time that the Israelites were in Babylon in captivity, having been taken there by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Persia rose to power under Cyrus the Great. One of the most fascinating prophecies in Scripture is in Isaiah 44, 28, and Isaiah 45, verse 1. 
This scripture, and I encourage you to look at it this week, Isaiah 44 and 45, predicted the man by name. Isaiah predicted Cyrus by name 150 years before these events. You can't dispute that. That's an amazing, incredible fulfillment of prophecy and really shows the integrity of Scripture and how it can be trusted, not just with predicting the future, but directing our present and healing our past. This man, Cyrus, had a father whose name was Cambyses. He was a a vassal king, that is, a king in submission to the Medes. And the Medo-Persian Empire started with the Medes being in control, and then the Persians sort of superseded Median control. So it was a, a joint kingdom, but the Medes started out more powerful, and then the Persians usurped the Medes, but it was still the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus's grandfather was Astyages the Mede, so he has uh, both Median and Persian blood. But after his father's death, Cyrus consolidated Persia and actually plotted Media's downfall. He wanted Persia to be the prominent power in this empire. So in 550 BC, Cyrus conquered Media by allying with a man we met last week in our studies, Nabonidus, the king of Babylon and the father of Belshazzar. So politics being what they are, he allied with the Babylonians to overthrow the Medes. Now the Persians are in control, but Babylon is still in control of most of the area. So you've got these two empires, And then in 539, as we know from last week's study, Cyrus conquered Babylon with the help of the Median kingdom. There was a man working with him, Cyaxares II. He was the king of Media at that time in submission to Cyrus the Persian. It's actually the uncle of Cyrus the Persian. He was a vassal king. He was also the last Median king under Cyrus the Great. He was about 62 years old when Medo-Persia conquered Babylon. So he is generally accepted to be Darius the Mede, who co-reigned with Cyrus. So I say that so when we talk about Darius the Mede, we're actually talking about a historical figure that we can identify within history. So now let's talk about the chapter we're going to study. And of course, Cyrus is mentioned in this chapter, but Darius is ruling in Babylon, and so he's the king that we're going to see in our account today. We start by looking at verses 1 through 5, and let's read them. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. We learn a lot about Daniel there and about the corruption in politics. It's kind of, you know, and this is sarcasm, hard to imagine a world where One person makes up false stories about another in order to torpedo their political career, but it seems like that happens every week these days. Forget about the truth. Just say something long enough and loud enough and over and over again and begins to destroy lives and even our country in the process. 
So things aren't that different. Politics have always been politics, and we're going to see that today. Very little has changed. Well, Darius appointed Daniel as an administrator within the Medo-Persian kingdom. As I've mentioned, Babylon had recently been conquered by the Medes and Persians, and Darius the Mede, who was appointed ruler of Babylon under Cyrus the Great of Persia, began to make administrative changes. Actually, he made very few changes, which makes sense, because the existing government was still in place after the fall of Babylon. They killed the king. They took over the kingdom. We talked about the fall of Babylon last week, how Cyrus's army, Darius's army as well, they snuck in, they drained the riverbed and snuck into the city, unlocked the gates, and killed those in power. Having conquered the city without a fight, he won the support of the people in advance. And so he appointed 120 government officials called satraps to rule throughout the now conquered kingdom. It's really more of a regime change than a conquered kingdom. So he also appointed three administrators to whom the 120 satraps were accountable. In essence, he's keeping the current government in place. Now, Daniel was one of these three administrators, finds himself in a very influential position within the kingdom. The reason that Daniel was one of these influential administrators is he had been recently returned to a position of power in Babylon after interpreting the handwriting on the wall. So what Darius planned to do is he planned to promote Daniel to the position of prime minister, that is, the top gun, the the, the number one person under him in the kingdom, as he had been promised under the current, or excuse me, former government of just a few hours earlier, really. So Daniel had served in his life as a young man, as a king's counselor, a provincial ruler within Babylon, and as chief of the magi, the rabmag, the one who was in charge of all the wise men. Not wise guys, wise men. The one who was in control of the individuals that were always showing up when the kings and others needed a riddle to be solved or a dream to be interpreted or some problem, difficult problem to be solved. And so he had a lot of government experience, but he had only very recently returned to a position within the government. He was actually between 80 and 90 years old at this point. Uh, He had been living in obscurity after Nebuchadnezzar's death for about 23 years, or at least that much. And so he really hadn't been involved at a high level within government. But having been appointed prime minister of Babylon, the very night that the city fell, Daniel is in a prominent position. But think about it. While Darius planned to honor Daniel's late appointment by Belshazzar, he did it not because of his position, but because of his outstanding abilities. I don't know how long Darius had to look at this man's life to figure out who Daniel was. You can pretty much sum up someone's character in a few minutes if you're wise and observing. It didn't take long for this king to realize Daniel's the guy you want in charge. Even at 80 or 90 years old, he was so capable, so wise, had such outstanding ability that his influence was able to, as we'll see in this chapter, sway this kingdom and and the king toward honoring God and his people. At no point did Daniel pick up arms and attack or create a rebellion. He didn't do any of those things. He just lived in such a way, such a godly way, that his outstanding abilities shone. And people saw and realized 
who he was. Well, Darius's recognition of Daniel emboldened his many political enemies to act against him. And so the coup begins. The hoaxes begin. All that political rivals do to try to take out the person that's in their way or the person that has different beliefs or principles than they do. Daniel's enemies were clearly threatened by his outstanding abilities. When somebody's good at what they do, they become the target of those that are not very good at what they do. You've seen it at work, I'm sure. We've seen it in our nation. You see it often. When someone has lesser talent or no talent at all, they usually try to attack the person who has great talent in order that they might have their position. And it's wicked, corrupt politics at its worst. So Daniel's recent rise to power had been extremely swift, as we know. Totally unanticipated. Totally unanticipated. They didn't see this guy coming. And so his success caused his jealous peers to try to sabotage his reputation as a government official. And that's what's going on here. But they were unable to charge him with any wrongdoing. No matter of investigation or special investigator or prosecutor could find anything wrong with this man's abilities, with his character, with his integrity. You shouldn't fear your enemies if they have nothing on you. They can do or try to do a great deal of damage to you, but at the end of the day, you trust God, amen, with your reputation because you know your character in Christ is unimpeachable. And that's the most important thing to remember as we're attacked for our beliefs, that we don't need to defend ourselves. We only need to trust in God. Amen? Okay, well, he was void of corruption in a world of political crooks. He was a capable public official. That doesn't happen too often. In a world of inept political cronies. But Daniel's enemies recognized his devotion to God, and they tried to use that against him. It's a mistake for someone to try to use your devotion to God against you because they're not just taking on you. They're taking on the God you serve. And when God is for us, who can be against us, as we'll see? Well, they concluded he was a faithful leader and a faultless leader. They also concluded that he would obey the law of his God regardless of the cost. And so he must be eliminated. We pick it up in verse 6. In verse 6, so the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O king Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. We see what's going on here, right? We understand what's happening. Little explanation. Darius just signed a decree that made praying to God a crime punishable by death. Now, I hope we never see that in our nation, but laws like this exist already in nations on this earth. In some of the more repressive regimes, we, over the centuries, but even today, we've seen things like this where you can't serve God. Don't try to open up a church in certain nations. I'm sure North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran. I'm sure those nations aren't real keen on having Christian churches. In fact, I don't know if this is still a law on the books, but in Saudi Arabia, you couldn't even have a cross when 
certain airplanes with like the Star of David or, or, or a cross on them had to fly into Saudi airspace. They couldn't have those things on them at one point. The world can be a repressive place. And there are laws sometimes passed by nations, dictatorships, that would seek to prevent us as Christians from worshiping God, Jews from worshiping God as well. What's interesting to me, even under the or behind the Iron Curtain, there were times where it wasn't possible to be outwardly, at least, a Christian. In China as well. What's fascinating, though, is that in those very nations where those things are restricted, the church is as strong as it can be. If you've ever met someone who worshipped or is worshipping in an underground church within some culture, you'll see a vast difference between their devotion to God and ours. And that makes sense. So it's not all bad news, but it is difficult when you're a Christian, you want to worship God, and your government says you can't. Now, we're fortunate that we have a constitution, which is constantly under attack, in our nation. And it can, or let's put it this way, that while the constitution can't be repealed, certain amendments can be repealed, and certain amendments have. But it's important to note something that that's a high bar. And thank God that our founders realized that we needed laws that couldn't just be changed every time the administration changed, like an executive order. We're so fortunate that we have some of those rights. But sometimes those rights are one justice or judge away from an interpretation that would take away our rights. And I hope and pray that we never see a time in our great nation where we can't worship God the way we are this morning. But brothers and sisters, that may happen. It's already happened and has happened in the past in certain nations and is happening today. So what do we do? Do we serve God because the Constitution says we can serve God? No, we serve God. Amen? We're fortunate to have a Constitution that guarantees that right. But that's not where the right or the opportunity comes from. The Constitution protects that right, but that right is our right as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ. So whether they change the laws or not, oh well, we will continue to serve our God, to worship our God openly. See, that's the thing. A lot of people would say, well, you know, I'm not going to let anybody know I worship God. But no, I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to see Daniel openly worship God in the face of political persecution. And this is political persecution more than anything else. It's not like the persecution that took place during the first Purim, you know, in the book of Esther, which was racial, which was anti-Semitism. This is political persecution. You know, I've read articles this last week that suggest things like conservatives uh, really should be eliminated. It's an interesting word, right? Uh, Last time we heard things like that politically is Nazi Germany, I think, or maybe since then. Eliminated. That's what the world... The devil thinks of you. You should be eliminated. Your rights should be taken away. So don't freak out. Don't worry. Your God can shut the mouth of lions, as we'll see. Political persecution. Well, I find it interesting that all of his enemies conspired together to issue this edict to enforce a decree that would simply result in Daniel's death. It's why they wrote the law. The law was written specifically to eliminate Daniel and their competition. Now, all these governing officials 
were threatened by Daniel's position, and most especially his relationship with Darius. So they falsely claimed that all of them, by the way, including Daniel, that I'm sure Daniel was not in on this, <laughs> had unanimously agreed with this edict. Everyone agreed, except they, everyone didn't agree. They falsely claimed this. The edict prohibited anyone from praying to their God during the next 30 days. 30 days, isn't that convenient? Just 30 days. That's probably why Darius thought, eh, okay. The only exception was if they wanted to pray to Darius. Think they're playing to his ego? And the penalty for defying this edict was public execution. Pretty severe law. These men were well aware of Daniel's devotion to God in prayer, so they used Daniel's faithfulness in prayer to entrap him and have him killed. Now, Darius's enemies, or excuse me, Daniel's enemies, conspired together to deceive Darius and prevent Daniel from being promoted. This is, let's get rid of Daniel because we don't want him to get the top job. So they used Darius's pride to blind him to their real intentions. Now, this shrewd political move was masqueraded as a show of loyalty and devotion to Darius, but in fact, it was none of that. It was an attempt at seizing power. They were all well aware of Darius's ego. We all have ego, men and women, but especially men, right? And they, they planned to exploit his weakness. And you need to know that. When people are trying to manipulate you, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to exploit your weakness, and you have weaknesses. So the more aware you are of your weaknesses, the safer you are. Because then you'll realize, wait a minute, this person knows that I happen to like this or don't like that, and they're using flattery or agreeing with me in order to influence me. I think of the proverb in Proverbs 26, verse 28, says, A lying tongue hates those it hurts. And a flattering mouth work, worketh ruin. So, you know, that's, that's a little insight of the wisdom of Scripture to let you know when someone's telling you what you want to hear, you might want to pray for wisdom. Well, they knew that the Medo-Persian kings were bound by the law, not above the law, like the Babylonians were above the law. The kings were above the law. They made laws, changed laws, no problem. But the Medo-Persians were different. They were a little bit more democratic in that the laws once passed couldn't be changed just because someone didn't like them. So they rushed through enforcing this decree as quickly as possible. Darius didn't take the time to consider the consequences of signing a decree like this. And there's another proverb. There's such wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I've encouraged you before. If you have a chance, uh, read a proverb a day for 31 days. And within a month, you'll receive more wisdom than you've ever had before. In chapter 20, verse 25 of the book of Proverbs, it says it's a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. A lot of people get married like that. You know, they make a commitment, but they're not really thinking it all the way through. A lot of people commit to things, and they don't recognize what they're committing themselves to. Passing a law like this was a, was a problem. It was a, a dangerous proposition. The decree was unchangeable because the law of the Medo-Persians was a law that could not be repealed. So Darius signed a decree, again, specifically designed to have Daniel executed. Now, the important thing to recognize is that Daniel was a godly influence in his culture, a wicked culture, but a godly influence nonetheless. 
From that, we can make application to our own lives in the circumstances we find ourselves in today. Daniel defied this decree, as we're going to see, because the decree made praying to God a crime punishable by death, and he would rather die than stop praying to God. I want you to think about that. He would rather die than stop praying. There's some people that would rather die than go to a prayer meeting. He would rather die than stop praying to his God. Let's read verse 10, just verse 10. In verse 10 in Daniel 6, we read, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. This is nothing new. You might have said, Daniel, at least close the windows. Maybe knock it down to once a day when everyone's asleep. Not at all. You see, I think what you need to see here is that Daniel trusted God and was willing to openly defy a law that violated not only his conscience, but the word of God. Is this civil disobedience? Yes, it is. See, when a law is passed that would violate our conscience or the word of God, it's not just that we no longer obey that law, we openly defy that law. And aren't we glad in our nation that our Constitution guarantees the right of protest, at least at the moment, until they, of course, decide there's a pandemic and then you can't do it anymore. Unless, of course, you're on the left, then it's fine. You want to burn down a city? As long as you support the left, that's fine. Peaceful protest. Show up at the Capitol and you're a bunch of terrorists. Has anyone seen this? Say amen. I mean, it, I'm not taking a political side as much as I'm saying, do you see the injustice? Even if you're on the left, can you see the injustice or are you just happy with the injustice? You, you can't deny it. It's true. I know facts are tricky things. They change a lot these days. But I'm realizing in our world that open defiance is our only response to infringement upon our rights. I didn't say an armed insurrection. Daniel didn't do that. Daniel just did what he always did, like go to church despite the fact they tell you you can't. Like pray, even if you're not allowed to pray. You know, they say, you can't pray in a public place. Really? Because I can pray with my mouth closed. You can't stop me from praying, and nor will you. And don't even try. But, just to be clear, openly defying those types of laws means maybe praying with words out loud. I've been in certain restaurants where, you know, the owners are maybe not Christians, maybe Muslims, and uh, we still say grace. You know, listen, what I do understand about God's word is that God's word is above man's law. Amen? Doesn't make me a rebel. It makes me devoted to my king. Are you willing to die for that? Well, I'm not willing to live with it. I'm not willing to live under that type of oppression. So yes, I'm willing to die for the right to worship God. Those that founded our nation and have protected it the last centuries know many have given their lives, like we remembered last weekend for Memorial Day, that many gave their lives to guarantee that right. So should I not 
take the opportunity to worship God if it costs me my life? I'll let you answer that for yourself. So he continued to pray after he had learned Darius's decree had been published. He prayed openly toward the city of Jerusalem without fear of being executed. I really don't believe this man was afraid of being executed. I think he knew, as we'll see, that God could protect him. Do you know that God can protect you? Say amen. You know that if God chooses to take you home, you're in a good place? Say amen. You know that to live in this world, cowering in fear, refusing to serve God and serving man is a hell itself? Say amen. Well, he refused to obey laws that were contrary to the word of God. This is going back to chapter 1 when he was a young man. In verse 8, he refused to break kosher rules. He refused to eat meat that he wasn't allowed to eat. So he asked, give us vegetables. He did it through influence, but he proved that his God could sustain him. This is a man that, you know, 60 years earlier, maybe even more, had proved God was faithful in his own life. And so at 80 or 90 years old, he's not going to stop now. He prayed openly without fear of being put to death. He prayed toward where God had promised he would return them. We've seen on Wednesday evenings in our studies in Second Chronicles, when we were in chapter 6, that Solomon prayed exactly that way. They prayed, oh Lord, if your people are taken into captivity and they turn towards your, your holy temple and they pray, restore them to their land. What do you think he's doing? He's praying for deliverance. He believed God's promises and the deliverance from captivity for Israel that was promised in his word. And we'll see that he believed that because he read it in Jeremiah. When we get to chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, we'll find out Daniel got that info from the book of Jeremiah, one of his contemporaries. He knew God had promised to return them to the land. He prayed consistently in humility before his God, giving thanks to his God in the midst of severe persecution and trials. He had never stopped praying for God's deliverance during those maybe 70 years in Babylon. Well, Daniel's enemies, well, you know, this is exactly what they wanted. They reported his refusal to obey Darius's decree. Look at verses 11 through 13. In verse 11, we read, Then these men went as a group. They always seem to go as a group. Have you noticed that? A bunch of cowards and weaklings. They won't stand for anything but their own corruption, but they stand together. They went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or to the decree you put in writing, he still prays three times a day. I'm intrigued by how much they knew about Daniel's life. Did they have his home bugged? Well, they probably had people spying on him. I know that doesn't happen today either. They knew what was going on. They were watching this man closely. They tried to get him to trip up. Of course they were. This was their goal. They weren't concerned about the people. They weren't concerned about the government. They weren't concerned about doing what was right or the king or, or administration or what they were supposed to be doing with their lives. They were concerned about themselves and defeating their rivals to take power. It was all about power. 
power, power. Well, of course, Daniel's enemies refused, uh, excuse me, reported his refusal to obey Darius's decree. They go to Daniel's home, find him praying and asking God for help, which was the right thing to do, especially under these circumstances. Notice Daniel prayed for God to defend him instead of defending himself against his enemies. He said, we're so quick to defend ourselves, but we need to ask God to defend us. If you've spent more time signing petitions than time on your knees praying for God to meet our needs and protect our rights, then you might be a little out of balance. It's okay to sign petitions. I sign a lot of them. But praying is more powerful than signing petitions. Can I hear an amen? Voting's important. And I encourage you all to vote in the primary this week. Vote your values. But listen, praying is more important than voting. Really? Yeah, even in America. Where we hold the right to vote at such high importance, and I agree, prayer is still more important and more powerful. He was so consistent in prayer that his enemies were able to predict his actions. They were well aware of his devotion to God in prayer. And I have a couple of questions for you and for me, for all of us. Are we as devoted to God in prayer? No one's walking out of here unconvicted. Okay, I'm just telling you that right now. We're all going to get it today. Me first, then you, and then those we share the message with. Are we as devoted to God in prayer? Would we have been so easily trapped as Daniel? How long would it take for our enemies to catch us openly praying? Would we get a month or two before they figured out who we are? If someone was asked about your devotion to God, what would they say? What would your neighbors say? Oh, those crazy Christians are always going to church. They're out of here early in the morning. I don't know what time they get to that church. They leave here at 7 or 8 in the morning. Are people watching you? Oh, you bet. They're watching you. They're watching you at school. They're watching you at work. I was amazed and astounded when I was in the corporate world. I I was just astounded by how many people knew so much about me. And when someone got into trouble or they had a question, they'd come into my cubicle and they'd say, "Uh, uh, Tim, you're a pastor, right? I'm like, well, how did this person know that? I got a question for you. And then they'd ask me some deep question. I'm like, I wonder how they knew. People are watching. They know who you are and who you are not. So how long would it take for our enemies to catch us openly praying? What's your testimony among your peers? What do other people say about you? They may say all manner of evil against you, but is it true? What do they say about your devotion, your prayer life? Our enemy can find us out as well. He certainly will, but are we even perceived as a threat to the kingdom of darkness? Job was, and we saw how that ended, better than his beginning, but he went through a heck of a time. I'm just encouraging all of us and allowing the Spirit to say, listen, your life should be filled with such consistency in prayer and worship and Bible study and service to God that if somebody was able to pass a law that said that any of those things were illegal, you'd be caught on the first day. Or am I off base? If you agree with me, say amen. Amen. We don't want that to happen, but I hope it never does. It happened to Daniel, though. They confirmed with Darius, he had published this decree, couldn't be repealed. As we know, that edict prohibited anyone from praying to their God for 30 days. 
Did Daniel wait 30 days and say, Lord, you'll understand. On day 31, I'll start praying again. No. Of course, the only exception, if they wanted to pray to Darius, that was okay. And so he's going to be publicly executed for defying this edict because that decree was unchangeable. Well, they informed Darius that Daniel had refused to obey his decree. They knew that Daniel was one of the Jewish exiles. They knew who he was. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar had brought him from Judah. They had witnessed that he still prayed three times a day, just as he'd done before. Three times a day, just as he had done before. Now, you're thinking, oh, pastor, I'd never remember to pray three times a day. We don't know how long Daniel prayed for. Might have been five minutes, might have been 20, I don't know. Might have been two, I don't know. I imagine it was a few minutes at least. Muslims are pretty devoted in prayer. They pray five times a day. What they pray isn't important. I'm just talking about the devotion. Daniel prayed three times a day. What's the easiest way to start praying three times a day? Maybe say grace. We know how to eat three times a day. No problem there. Our stomachs, we have a sort of built-in monitor that says, I'm hungry. And we say, oh, I better eat. And I know most of you do this, but especially if you're teaching your children, before you break bread, before you have your breakfast, before you have your lunch, before you have your dinner, maybe you have a couple of snacks in there, pray for God to bless the food, but then just don't pray for that. You know, God is good, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. We used to sing or say that prayer as little kids, but maybe a little bit more than that. Maybe God bless this day, bless our family, bless our nation, bless our troops overseas. Anything you feel led to pray, just pray. But now Daniel was not just praying for himself. He was praying for others. He was interceding on behalf of his nation, his people, Israel. So I'm going to challenge you as we get a little bit closer to July 4th, okay? We don't want it to come up too quick because we want to enjoy the summer. But as we get closer to that day, can I encourage you, maybe every time you say grace, if you don't do this already, start doing it. Just saying, Lord, bless the United States of America. You can pray, bless the world. You can pray, bless other nations. I'm not saying you can't, but just at least say, Lord, bless this food and bless the United States of America. Bless our nation. May our hearts be turned back to God. Amen? That's similar to what Daniel was praying. He was praying for his nation to be restored to their land. We pray for our land to be restored in our nation. Well, it's a lot to think about, but it's a challenge. Well, in verse 14, we'll look at verses 14 through 18. We're going to see Darius had no choice but to order that Daniel be put to death for defying his decree. He was bound by the law. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, this man is bound by his law. And so we read in verse 14, and I want you to note in particular the heart of Darius and recognize Daniel's godly influence on him. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group again to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, note this, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. It's very telling. 
A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. I want to focus in on Daniel's influence. It wasn't what Daniel said. Daniel hasn't even said anything. It's how Daniel lived. His life and his lifestyle so influenced the king that his reaction reveals Daniel's influence. See, his influence was all over others. He didn't have to stand up and say, I'm a very influential public figure. Look at me. I'm an influencer. I have an Instagram page. That's what I do. I get paid to influence people. Hi, here I am. Notice me. No, that's not influence. That's weird. That's a weird thing in our culture. I don't quite understand, but of course I'm 57. I saw the stupidest thing. I, one of this. I, it's hard to even say the stupidest thing because so much goes on. If I look at the news, I would see all kinds of stupid things. But a number of years ago, there was this challenge. It might have been one of those TikTok challenges or whatever, YouTube things. People were dumping buckets of ice water on their head. And then people were breathing in cinnamon And then one, people were taking a bottle of vodka and putting it in their eye. That all makes sense, right? You want to be influenced by people like that? I don't know what to tell you. I don't look at any of those things. I happen to see it on the news. It's, oh, the dangerous trend. Kids are breathing in cinnamon. And thinking to myself, if I have a Zeppeli at a carnival and I breathe in with that confectioner sugar, I go into cardiac arrest. Why would I breathe in cinnamon? You know, you really, if you're going to have a pastry, just a little wisdom here, it's not in the Bible. But if you're going to eat a Zeppeli or anything with confectioner sugar, don't breathe in. Trust me. Especially in the days of COVID. They'd be coughing for three weeks. Now the point is influence. Influence is all over this man. And we're not even talking to Daniel. We're not even talking so much about what he said, because he didn't say anything. It's just Daniel's life that has influenced this king. And who knows how long it had been, but long enough that the man could influence this king. Daniel, his influence is inspirational, aspirational. It's something that we need to look at and think, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? What do I need to do to be a godly influence? I, I want to point out that this man, this king, who had a lot of things on his heart and on his mind, I'm sure, was greatly distressed. He realized he had signed a decree specifically designed to have this man executed, so he feels responsible. But not everyone cares. This man did. In fact, Darius did everything he could to try and rescue Daniel from public execution. He knew his pride was responsible for condemning Daniel to death, at least his inability to see what these political rivals were up to. He was clearly manipulated by them as he had never intended to hurt his most trusted advisor, but he was limited in his efforts to save him. So Daniel's enemies come along, and these guys, they just, they talk, and I just like, "Mm, I can't wait for them to get it. But that's not biblical, that's just me. You ever watch a movie and the bad guys keep getting away with stuff, and you're like, oh, I I almost want to rush to the end of the movie so I can see them get it? We're not going to do that, but when we get there, you'll see. So 
His enemies remind the king that his decree was unchangeable, couldn't be repealed. That's it, king. We got you in a headlock. And so Darius ordered Daniel's enemies to have him thrown into the lion's den. He had no choice. He was restricted by the law, forced to take action against Daniel. He was just following orders. You see, he was ultimately, this man, he was looking to the God Daniel served. And you have to understand, looking to the God whom Daniel served is the right response. Daniel was completely devoted to this God. And this king was so influenced by Daniel and his relationship with God that he put his hope in God's ability to deliver him and rescue him. Think about that. Think about that from his own actions. I want to go back there and look at that again. Look at verse 16. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. That sounds like faith a little to me, doesn't it? Sounds like faith. Sounds like somebody actually believes in the God of Daniel, or at least in his ability to save those that worship him. Now, Darius isn't an enemy, but he's not a Jew. And yet he feels this way. So he's forced to seal Daniel within the lion's den with no earthly means of escape, but of course God is greater than that. Notice what Darius did, though. He fasted, kept watch the entire night while Daniel was in the lion's den. The implication, he didn't sleep, he stayed up, he, he didn't eat. He, he, just, he was so preoccupied and concerned about what would happen to this advisor, this godly man. But he did believe that Daniel's God could deliver him, and he openly prayed that he would. Or did you miss that? Does that sound like a prayer to anybody? May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. I don't know. He might have broken his own law. He exercised faith in Daniel's God based solely on one thing, his observation of Daniel. Oh, that the people around us would exercise faith in God based solely on their observation of us. Notice, not what they say, not what we say, how we live, who we are, our influence. This man, this king, never gave up hope that Daniel might still be alive in the morning. He never said, oh, well, he was a nice guy. I'm so sorry he's no longer here. You have to see that God was using Daniel's persecution by his enemies to reach Darius. God was working in the life of this king through Daniel's persecution. Just like he had worked in Daniel's life to reach Nebuchadnezzar. And even tried to reach Belshazzar, though Belshazzar rejected God. God is merciful. Say amen. Such wicked people. Such wicked people that you and I might not even want to pray for. And God is faithful to try and reach them, and in many cases reach them, because of the influence of others, and through the influence of others. Well, in verse 19, this is cool. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den, and when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, I wouldn't have asked that question if there wasn't some degree of hope that it was true. Daniel answered, oh, and by the way, these are the only words that Daniel utters in the entire chapter. I don't know if you noticed that. He hasn't said anything. He records this, but these are the only words. Daniel answered, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel. And he shut the mouths of the lions 
They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. Well, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. That's a tremendous story. Kids love that story. I love that story. But if you just focus in on the lion's den, you miss the point. Remember, this, the theme of this book is the sovereignty of God, but, but also understand this chapter has to do with Daniel's influence over this king. Darius discovered that God had delivered Daniel from the mouth of the lions. Darius hurried, notice, to the lion's den at first light, as soon as he could, to find out if Daniel's God had chosen to rescue him. But he never doubted that he could. Clearly, Darius called to Daniel, hoping by faith that Daniel might still be alive. Why was he in anguish? Because he was greatly concerned for this man. This was more than just a guilty conscience for his foolish actions. I believe Darius cared deeply for this aged man who so impressed him by his testimony. I'm going to tell you something. You will influence others through relationship. Through relationship. Oh, pastor, I would never have a, a relationship with an ungodly person. Well, then you'll never be able to influence them. I didn't say partake in their sins. But you and I, we need to build relationships with those who don't know God so they can see our lives. Praise our Father in heaven. That's how this works. Locking yourself in a monastery is not going to get it done. Living in a Christian commune and never interacting with the world isn't going to happen. It's not going to make it happen. It's not going to accomplish anything. I love Daniel's response, though. He responded to Darius, and he assured him that, in fact, God had indeed shut the mouths of the lions. There are a lot of lions out there. The Bible tells us that Satan is like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking to devour us. Can God shut the mouths of lions? Say amen. He blessed Darius, testified that God had sent his angel to rescue him, hadn't been hurt. Hadn't been hurt by the lions because he was innocent of any wrongdoing. He had always trusted God. He trusted God from the moment he opened up those windows and prayed three times a day, defying that law. He was found innocent before God and before Darius because he had trusted in God's power and in his righteous judgment. You have to put your trust in God. Not in government, not in legislation. You have to put your trust in God. And so Darius ordered Daniel to be lifted out of the lion's den. He was overjoyed that Daniel's God had rescued him from the mouth of the lions. See, his faith, that is Darius's faith, in Daniel's God was rewarded with an immensely joyful experience. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it is confirmation that your faith in God is real. So are you filled with joy today? Oh, pastor, how could you say that? Things are horrible in the world. How could I be filled with joy? Look at Ukraine. Oh, how can I be filled with joy? Things are just so horrible. I mean, look at our, the state of our nation. Look at what's going on with this transgender uh, agenda and what's going on in our schools. Things are horrible. Yeah, but are you filled with joy? Oh, pastor, how can I be filled with joy? Things are so... Wait a minute. Have you put your faith in God? Have you put your trust in God? Do you know that God can shut the mouths of lions? Because if you know that, you can be filled with joy. Say amen. Filled with joy. I'm filled with joy. People talk to me about political things all the time, and they're always surprised. Oh, I wish I had your optimism. You know why I have optimism? Because it's realism. God is real. And I trust God. And I believe God can shut the mouths of lions. 
or the mouths of individuals who say all manner of blasphemy against him. Well, he learned that Daniel's God was trustworthy by watching Daniel trust him through his trial. Trust God in the trials, and you'll preach a sermon without words. Daniel was completely unharmed. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. Well, let's wrap things up, and then we'll receive communion. Verse 24 says this. We've read it already, actually. Oh, no, we haven't, actually. I'm sorry. 23 we read. 24, oh, this is my favorite verse. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. That's kind of sad. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So obviously, they were hungry. Understand, Darius ordered that Daniel's enemies be put to death for their deception, for what they had done. And they were worthy of death. I don't like the idea of taking the whole family, but Medo-Persians put to death those who made false accusations and their entire family as well. That was to be an incentive not to do the wrong thing. 122 government officials had conspired against Daniel and Darius. They were immediately executed, having been threatened by Daniel's position and his relationship with Darius. Their attempt to deceive Darius and prevent Daniel from being promoted had failed. In fact, their actions against Daniel left him in an incredibly powerful position in Babylon. At the moment, there were 122 rivals, and now they're not. See how God works? Trust God. Well, the lions attacked and crushed Daniel's enemies and their families before they even reached the floor of the den. It's clear that the lions were prevented by God from attacking Daniel as they were obviously hungry. It's not like they were doing a whole 30. If you don't know what that is, that's like you don't eat certain things for 30 days. No, listen, listen, they were hungry. It was God who shut their mouths. And they had stared at Daniel the entire night, which only made them even hungrier. Well, Darius issued a decree to honor the God of Daniel. And so we read in verses 25 through 27, Then King Darius wrote, To all the people's nations and men of every language throughout the land, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Oh, I'm going to ask a worship team to come up. I believe Anthony's coming up. And as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, this was a king who had the power and authority to write to the whole world. So that's why we pray for people in positions of authority and power, that they turn their hearts to God, because they have something that can really greatly influence our world. The Medo-Persian Empire had many peoples, nations, language groups. He wishes them great prosperity. It sounds like Nebuchadnezzar's letter in chapter 4. He's writing to command the people to fear and reverence the God of Daniel because that's what's best for them. Writing to tell the world about how God had rescued Daniel From the power of the lions. You know something? Daniel's testimony may have given him the opportunity to give his life to God and for this king to serve him. But sometimes we have to go through trials for that to happen. I believe we're going through trials today for this very purpose. 
I'm not going to speak as a prophet. I'm just going to look at the scripture, make application and say, I believe all the suffering we're going through, like gas that's twice as much as it was a year ago, like the price of oil and diesel and inflation and food and meat and milk and eggs, all of that, you know what? That's very mild persecution. I've never been thrown in a lion's den. I'll pay a little bit more for dairy. But as we go through difficult times, and, and I'm not minimizing the difficulties that we're facing right now, but embrace them. Trust God in them and let others see how you do that so that as we go through these difficult times, those wicked people or those people that are watching you will be influenced for good and for God. Oh, Daniel continued to prosper while serving within this government right up until the time of his death. And during that time, he was influential in representing the welfare of God's people. In fact, he may have been the person that God used to move the heart of Cyrus the Great because Cyrus, and we'll see this in future studies, he issued a decree that effectively ended the 70-year captivity, answering Daniel's prayer that he prayed on his knees three times a day for 70 years. See, God may answer your prayers through you if you trust him. This man had seen and witnessed the fulfillment of numerous prophecies during his lifetime, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, the fall of Babylon, the rise of Cyrus the Great, the end of the 70-year captivity. This man trusted God. God's purpose in all of these trials was to raise him to an even higher position of power within this kingdom. In fact, his persecution gave him the opportunity to influence Darius on behalf of God's people. Embrace the persecution. Don't ask for it. Don't wish for it. When it comes, embrace it. The Jewish people now had an opportunity because they had a powerful advocate to care for them and protect them during their captivity. Let's see what God does in our nation through us. This was the, re the real result of Daniel's godly influence. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. And as we open our hearts to receive communion, we commit our hearts to you in this way. We ask, Lord, that you would influence others through us as we trust you in the face of persecution. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.